0: Welcome to Rising. I'm joined at the desk today by Brianna Joy Gray, of course, where we have been uh, really going over White Lotus Season 2, which we're both obsessed with.
1: That's <laughs> true. <laughs> uh,
0: a lot of theories going on. I don't know who you think is going gonna, is gonna to get killed. Probably we shouldn't spoil it for the viewers mm, either, but... I think it's
1: something happening in the Jennifer Coolidge storyline. Oh, I the do best as well. that's all I'm going to say. <laughs> I do as well.
0: Okay. Well, what are we talking about on our show today? Well, apart
1: from White Lotus and all of the looks Aubrey Plaza is serving, we'll have Revolutionary Blackout Network. Works. Savvy Savage joining us later. We'll discuss why House progressives are reportedly warming up to Hakeem Jeffries as minority leader. Plus, our rising panel will dive into the Georgia runoff election as voters head to the polls to cast their vote for either Raphael Warnock or Herschel Walker. But first, White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre told reporters yesterday that the release of the Twitter files detailing the platform's internal deliberations over the 2020 suppression of the Hunter Biden laptop story is unhealthy and a distraction. Let's watch.
2: We see this as an interesting or a coincidence, if I may, that uh, that he would so haphazardly, uh, Twitter was so haphazardly push this distraction. Uh, that is a, that is a full of uh, old news, if you think about it. Um, and, uh, at the same time, Twitter is facing very real and very serious questions, uh, about the rising volume of anger, hate and anti-Semitism on their platform and, uh, how they're letting it happen. And, uh, you know, the president said last week, more leaders need to speak out and reject this. And uh, it's a very alarming and very dangerous. And, but our focus right now is helping the American families. I just talked about what the President is going to be doing in Arizona, talking about the Chips and Science Act, talking about how we're bringing manufacturing jobs back here to the U.S., talking about, under this administration, more than 700,000 jobs uh, have been created, uh, in manufacturing jobs, to be more specific. Look, what is happening, it's, it's, not, it's, it's frankly, it's not healthy. It won't do anything to help a single American improve their lives.
1: There seems to be something a little bit rich about trying to distract the public with other stories when the story here is the extent to which the White House and Democrats reached out to Twitter under its former leadership asking for the story to be suppressed, not because it didn't have journalistic merit, but because it was disadvantageous or was perceived to be disadvantageous to president, uh, then uh, candidate Biden's um, presidential run. I mean, they created the story by engaging in the effort of suppression in the first instance. And I'm not sure saying there's nothing to see here, folks, is helping their case.
0: No. In fact, it seems very harmful to their because it just seems so obviously ridiculous. I mean, and what's the whole, oh, well, isn't this interesting that he's choosing to do this right now? Well, he just took over the company. And right. With a clear mandate or self-described mandate to, uh, to show what was going on behind the scenes at Twitter, vis-a-vis or regarding some decisions it's made that the public is very understandably very upset about and that, that, that people on both sides of the aisle— should be able to agree we're not good, first and foremost, the Hunter Biden laptop story debacle. I don't—she's getting at you right. I've seen some claims that there's more hateful language on Twitter since the acquisition. This comes from this Center um, for Countering Digital Hate nonprofit. It's a British nonprofit that was responsible—largely uh, responsible for the crackdown on COVID misinformation. They're, they're the ones that circulated claims about these are the big misinformation super mm-hmm. spreaders, if you remember that. Mm-hmm. So I, I find them to be a, a very, very explicitly activist-y kind of mm-hmm. misinformation fighting outfit, which that's a, that's a set of skills that make me very skeptical, but whatever. I don't know. It could, uh, fine. Even if hate is worse on the platform, it doesn't really speak to this specific question, which is we want to know more about what went wrong and we're learning more. And that seems important regardless. And I, I I, I mean, she's just doing her her effort to spin it as something else.
1: Here's the problem. There's a credibility issue from people who I think should be in a position to rightly criticize some ongoing problems with Twitter. Garland Nixon, Jackson Hingle, a lot of prominent folks across the political spectrum, including on the left, have been taken off the platform. There has been a robust conversation about whether the choice to ban Alex Jones and now to reban Kanye West were based on actual metrics that are consistent with what Elon Musk has said is acceptable before or whether or not it's his own personal peccadilloes that are Mm -hmm. deciding these kinds of things. There are real speech issues at hand here. And unfortunately, the White House has put itself into position as not being a credible um, commentator on these issues and leaving it completely to (laughs) others because they refuse to acknowledge that at any point they have made any Poor judgments in assessing uh, how information needs to be marshaled on this app or whether they should have a role in it at all.
0: Yeah, I agree. When well, an analysis completed by Philip Bump for The Washington Post yesterday, he concluded that Twitter censorship of The New York Post reporting did not cost Donald Trump the election in 2020. According to Google Trends data cited by The Post, social media interest in the contents of the lost laptop story began to climb only after platforms began to restrict uh, sharing of the story. Uh, so just to address that for a minute, so I, I agree um, with that analysis, the... But the issue is censoring the story. Actually, it it was it backfired in my view. I talked about this with Bacha yesterday. It just 100% Streisand effect. Because even though they could keep the story itself off YouTube, or or off off YouTube, sorry, (laughs) 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 had post traumatic stress from our own ordeals (laughs) off Twitter and uh, and and uh, suppressed on Facebook, they could not stop then every other news. Agent's news outlet was writing about what was happening to the story, and all of those stories were on social media. So more people found out about the story, and also in a context of this is the story that you know is too hot to handle on social media. They don't want you to. You know, the regime, the establishment, yeah. is afraid to let you read this. That's a that's a it's, really bad recipe for, it's, for it's keeping contributed to something to, like, down. Free
1: speech as an issue in and of itself to become such a motivating issue for conservatives. Yes, and and when you when you ask people. Why it is they think that the left is not open to free speech, why they're the ones that are suppressing free speech. The Hunter Biden laptop story is kind of the red flag that it's very difficult for anybody to push back against because it's true. And it's fed... It's it's fed a lot of other things that I think are necess- not necessarily as credible, you know. But but having this really big obvious instance in which no one can credibly say that there wasn't suppression of a legitimate news story, whatever you think the actual news mm-hmm. value of it. But a true news story has been really damaging, I think, to the left, the broad left liberals claimed to being being people who could actually protect that fundamental. It says something
0: right. that this example. Even more so than Trump being take it, suspended and kicked off social media, is the thing conservatives cite for why they're yeah. mad at social media yeah. and why it's bad. It's this story. Yeah. And it's because it was a really mishandled decision. We learned a little bit more uh, on Friday about why that was. Matt Taibbi in releasing these Twitter files that showed just a lot of incompetence on the part of, I think, some biased uh, employees. Who, although he still did not uh, they haven't explained exactly who initially made the call to treat this story as unsafe, which is interesting. I, I don't yeah. maybe they don't know maybe there's, it's not clear, but someone we, we, like we know who participated in making the hacked materials justification. that's what we got a lot of emails about the Vijaya Gad playing a role. Jack Dorsey kind of not involved early on. The, you know these various comms and content moderation people saying well, maybe it violates the hack materials policy, or it does, right? And other people being like, does it? And, well, that's what we're going with. But the initial, this is unsafe and has to be taken down, we didn't actually get the explanation for who that was or, no, wh- it, or what process resulted in it. It might not have been a person, it could have been a process. Right,
1: and it, and it is worth noting that there, you know, the emails show that there have been requests made in a bipartisan way for Absolutely. various things to be taken down. And, frankly, the, the hero of it all in terms of Congress members seems to have been Ro, Ro Khanna, Khanna. who was the one raising his hand and saying, is there actually some metric here that is based in constitutional law or something based that is Ro actually Kana. being
0: used
3: <laughs> based
1: Rocon I will have to follow up with him and um, see if he has more to say about that but before that time I'm looking forward to hearing about what you have to say in your radar Robbie
0: Stay tuned
2: for that.
1: Robbie, the people are clamoring to know what is on your radar today.
0: Well, happy to fill you and the people (laughs) in. So the day before Thanksgiving, Dr. Anthony Fauci testified in a court case that's Schmidt v. Biden. This is the lawsuit brought by the Republican Attorneys General of Missouri and Louisiana against the Biden administration for allegedly pressuring social media companies to moderate so-called COVID-19 misinformation. The suit is being handled by the New Civil Liberties Alliance, a legal group making the case that dictates from the Biden White House, the CDC, and other top federal officials, was so heavy-handed as to effectively violate the First Amendment. Clients of the New Civil Liberties Alliance include social media users who were kicked off the sites, they argue, because the federal government made it untenable for Twitter and Facebook and Google to avoid taking stronger stances against COVID misinformation— Even though the science subsequently changed and many seemingly provocative claims about masks, vaccines, the origins of the virus itself are now legitimately debatable topics. You aren't a crazy conspiracy theorist if you don't think vaccines are meaningfully reducing cases or if you think COVID originated from a lab leak. We're allowed to discuss those things. Now, as part of this lawsuit, Fauci was deposed and had to answer questions for seven straight hours, actually. The deposition took place behind closed doors, so only the attorneys who were present and a few others got to hear what he had to say. But just yesterday, a transcript was released of the proceedings, and so we can finally read what Fauci was asked and what he answered. I want to highlight one exchange in particular. Fauci is asked about an email he sent to Hugh Oshensklaus, one of his top deputies. This email, sent shortly after midnight on February 1st, uh, contains an attachment. Quote, SARS-Barrick, Xi et al., Nature Medicine. That's the at- name of the attachment. So undoubtedly, that attachment is referencing a 2015 article in Nature Medicine authored by those two people, Ralph Barrick and Xi Zhang Li. Barrick, you'll recall, is a professor of epidemiology at UNC Chapel Hill who does research on coronaviruses. And Xi Zhengli is a Wuhan researcher known as the Bat Lady for collecting so many bat samples at that lab under conditions that have prompted considerable public concern. We heard about some of them in that Great ProPublica piece from a few uh, weeks ago. Now, their article discusses their successful efforts to mutate a bat-derived SARS-like virus in a manner that would make it infectious for humans. Work by Barrick and by Xi has been funded by the U.S. government vis-a-vis the National Institutes of Allergies and Infectious Diseases, which is headed by Dr. Fauci. So in the deposition, Fauci is asked the following. Do you know why you attached that article to this email to Hugh, your principal deputy? response, I'm quoting, I don't recall, but I believe, and again, I would say I don't precisely recall, but there was some recollection or someone told you that, you know, we do fund research in China, particularly surveillance research. I think you referred to it when you gave me one of the exhibits about the surveillance of what might be out in the community among bats. My recollection, I brought to Hugh's attention saying, look, we have to speak in the morning because I want to find out what the scope of what it is that we are funding, so I'll know about what we're talking about. And that's what I was referring to when I said, you'll have some tasks today to give me some information because this was the first, I had heard about specifics of what EcoHealth and other people were doing, and I wanted my staff to say, get me up to date. So that's what I meant by you have work to do. Next, Fauci was asked, were you concerned at the time that the work that you had funded in China might have led to the creation of the coronavirus? He answered, I wasn't concerned that it might have, but I didn't like the fact that I was completely in the dark about the totality of the work that was being done. And I was going into a phone call with a larger group of established scientists, and I wanted to have at my fingertips just what we were and were not doing. Fauci and the attorneys also discussed at great length the pause on U.S. funding for gain-of-function research that had gone into effect in 2014, though they note and forced Fauci to concede that the pause contained an exception clause whereby a U.S.-funded gain-of-function experiment could proceed if it was deemed necessary by a relevant agency head. So much for the pause. Here's Fauci summarizing this. An exception from the pause may be obtained if the head of a U.S. government funding agency determines that the research is urgently needed to protect the public health or national security. So at the time that the pause on all of this research was implemented, it was felt strongly by just about everybody in the research community and the public health community that if you paused everything, well, there might be a situation where you would want to do an experiment that would be urgently necessary to protect the public health and national security, and therefore, that would allow an exception to be considered. The attorneys then asked the obvious follow-up question, which is, was such an exception ever granted? Fauci replies that such an exception was granted at least a few times. He is then asked whether he ever personally signed off on an exception. He says he doesn't recall, though it's possible such papers crossed his desk. And I would encourage everyone to read through that entire transcript if they want. It's tons and tons of pages, seven hours. And mostly it's Fauci saying he doesn't recall the specifics of what they're asking him. Uh, I, I wouldn't describe it as... So as uh, so revealing, blows the lid off this whole thing. But, look, I found it pretty interesting uh, to, to see more verification from him, from Fauci admitting that um, he looked into this when it was brought—when it was put forth to him that, hey, people are concerned that this derives from research we were doing, and we can point to grants that were given to experiments that seem— pretty much aimed at just this, and it's uh, given where the, the virus emerged from, given all these things, it looks awful uh, uh, convenient for, or, or inconvenient for for what our responsibility would then be. And then also, he does say that, ex- I thought that pause was pretty, um, that pause of gain-of-function research was pretty absolute. Doesn't sound absolute at all. Oh, national security reasons? That's, <laughs> we know that's BS. And if national security uh, rationale can can justify any government policy is what we've, is what we've come to find. So, I come away with it, not, certainly not at peace about what we were doing.
1: Yeah, look, the line about, you know, where he's asked whether or not he had concerns that motivated him to share the um, paper by Lee and, and others. And he says, well, I didn't have concerns, but I didn't want to be in the dark. I, didn't, I was uncomfortable being in the dark about what had been done and what hadn't been done. I mean that's called concerns. Yeah. I mean that's yeah. that's what that means. You know, not liking being in the dark thinking that there might be implications for one's agency's involvement in a bad outcome is like the definition of concerns. I understand why he doesn't want to necessarily give that soundbite because it might overstate the extent mm-hmm. of his concerns and how likely or like how, how likely he thought there was actually some um, responsibility there. But OK, that's that's Lisa that's lawyer speak. Fine. Um, you know, I don't know how much of a smoking gun ultimately this is. I, I do think that Fauci does seem to have been taking this position, especially as he's moving into retirement, about being open to gain-of-function research being the cause of the virus and lab leak being the cause of the virus. We talked about this, I think, a couple of weeks ago, that he—that his language has been very accommodating to that extent, and it's not clear why or if that really does represent a shift from what he's been saying before—been but it will been saying before, rather. But it will be interesting to see, you know, how much that tone mm-hmm. of conversation continues. As he's no longer in his official capacity.
0: And I have to say, very frankly, that—look, I get it's a, it's a very large uh, agency, federal health apparatus, that he was in charge of for decades. So when he says, you know, I've been at this for so long, I don't remember what papers I read, whatever— Sure. It, I do get that. But this is very this is very um, important research. Some would say dangerous. There's a lot of concerns about it. So for him to have—even e- though I know he's got a lot, million things on his plate— for him to have really no idea—I mean, he needed to be brought up to speed when the coronavirus happened on what kind of research was being done and which projects had been granted. Maybe that's because there's so many of them, it would be unreasonable to expect him to know exactly what's going on. But this is a pretty big one, given the public concern about it. And and he like he doesn't know if he granted an exception to continue doing this kind of experiment. If it came across his desk, he might have signed it because he just signs things without looking at it. Like, I don't know. It's— He's an older man. It's harder to remember.
1: I I mean, we talk about people
0: staying in their jobs forever, but...
1: I I do think it's possible not to remember something like that. Until an emergency erupts, there are a lot of different ethical considerations that are happening in scientific research all over the place. It's not clear to me that he would have necessarily been tracking that one in particular. Then maybe you might think it's negligent to not have a closer eye on on these kinds of things now knowing what COVID has wrought. But pre-COVID, you know, I don't think that's completely unreasonable, but I do think... I think he was prepped before going into this deposition and has probably taken a look at these documents in the past. And at this point probably has a pretty decent recollection of why it is that he was circulating that paper that was so on point. And, you know, again, we'll see how transparent he is going forward now that he is no longer in his official capacity or whether or not um, he starts closing up again when people start digging into more of these kinds of facts, admissions and deposition transcripts.
0: Just reporting it. We report it. You decide. I think that's the, uh, the old-timey <laughs> old journalism phrase. Uh, more rising right after this. Stay with us.
4: There are
1: some rumblings on a bipartisan immigration reform effort coming out of Capitol Hill. Washington Post opinion columnist Greg Sargent first reported that Republican Senator Tom Tillis and Democratic Senator Kirsten Sinema have reached an agreement to grant a path to citizenship to about two million dreamers. The deal would also speed up elements of the asylum process and add more money toward border security.
0: But any agreement on immigration, however promising, could face multiple snags, as The Hills' Rafael Bernal reports. Quote, immigration advocates on either side of the aisle are hard-pressed to move during the lame duck session, as the incoming House GOP majority is unlikely to reach any sort of immigration deal that doesn't cross Democratic red lines. So we were talking before we started rolling here that neither of us are actually all that... Expectant that this will will go anywhere, immigration is a is something the Republican base is very very fired up about. Always, um, honestly, the success of the Trump, to the extent there was success, the initial success for Trump was due to reading what conservative—not just the, like, tiny sliver of the base, but the conservative movement wants, in terms of immigration, had priorities that were not within—in step with what Republican elites, what the GOP wanted. And there was a—you know, George Bush tried to do an immigration Mm -hmm. deal. So there's been a—now there is an understanding. And and the people, the voters in Republican circles, they want—I'm sure they'd want more border security, but they don't want anything that even closely resembles amnesty for anyone, including the Dreamers. That's— that's going to be a minority position among voters overall, but among within the GOP, right. that's a very popular position. So right. I, I don't see them moving on it. And Why would they get brown?
1: You know, Kevin McCarthy is saying, you know, if uh, if he is you know leader, that he absolutely won't broker any kind of um, uh, negotiation negotiation for uh, Dreamers at all. I think we, we have that thought. He's pretty firm about that.
5: Under Republicans. Would amnesty of any kind for any group of these migrants who have come across ever be on the table?
2: No amnesty.
1: (laughs) No amnesty. (laughs) No, no convocation there. Moreover, they would have to get uh, 10 Republican votes for this. And I think a lot of folks are looking at this, looking at what just happened with the railroad strike, where Democrats were dangling the possibility of getting 10 people—it was actually going to need to be ten more, more than 10 people to cross the aisle to vote for the seven days of sick leave for uh, railroad workers. They did get some, though. They did get some, but they needed more than 10 because there were people like Bernie Sanders who were willing uh, wanted to vote down the TA because they don't believe that the government should be in the role of crushing unions uh, first uh, in the first place, um, and weren't able to get it. And there has been a trend of dangling the possibility of something getting passed as a justification for ginning up votes for the other part of bill. The- so just yeah. to backtrack a little bit, remember there was this weird kind of bifurcation of the, uh, TA, the the uh, agreement that the rail workers are being forced into in the sick days that they actually wanted. And the fact that they were joined in the House was used as a justification for why a lot of Democrats, including the progressives, all but one of the squad members, actually voted for that package to get to that Senate, where it could al- ultimately be split apart, the TA voted for, and the uh, ability for a, a legal strike to happen crushed, and therefore all of the leverage of the uh, rail workers to be stripped away. So people are looking at all these machinations. We saw it with the $15 minimum wage. We saw it with the bill Better bill where there is this promise that maybe they're going to get the votes for X, Y, and Z that never seem to quite materialize. And it's hard to say. Now, Greg Sargent, in his article, is pointing to the fact that there are a number of retiring Republicans like Roy Blunt of Missouri and Pat Toomey of Pennsylvania, and also other Republicans that have shown some willingness to challenge the Trump wing of the party like Mitt Romney and Lisa Murkowski, who might be those to cross the aisle. But even so, do they have 10?
0: Yeah, it seems doubtful, which is a shame because the Policy, as described, sounds pretty good from my standpoint. I'm more for immigration than uh, much of the current GOP, but uh, it, it was uh, asylum for some dream, dreamers who are here already. I mean, they're not going anywhere. They're here. I, I don't. No one in their wild streams thinks we're actually going to send all these people back to Mexico. That's a delusion. Or, don't right know, that, they're or they're or where yeah. they're from. Uh, but it would combine it with some more funding for border security and then an actual— reforms to this asylum process. We need to make it—people you know, people are, I think, understandably dissatisfied with this new reality, which is everybody comes in, claims asylum, even if that doesn't really fit their situation, and then they move about the country as they wait to be adjudicated. We need to make the process simpler and more streamlined. Uh, and fine, then we can have—if people are concerned that we don't have enough control over who's coming here, that's because of what the process is. Make it easy to do, and then, and then you know— Who's coming, and then and and then you won't have as much of it in the sketchy, illegal, dangerous way dangerous for them. The the conditions they come over here on yeah, that seems like clear, an improvement on what we have right now. Part
1: of the issue is that people are coming here claiming asylum, and they're not allowed to move to the country. In fact, especially depending on what country you've come from. Uh, you are deported back to it without your asylum claim actually being vetted. So I'm not going to sit here and say that every asylum claim is meritorious or equally meritorious, but it's a real problem if you're making decisions based on the country of origin as opposed to individual claim and putting people back in situations where they are subject to real threats to their life. Uh, We recently covered a story about a number of asylees from Russia uh, who are claiming political asylum, um, who are, in the abstract, very much lauded by the American media saying, oh, look at you for standing up against Putin. He's our Mm -hmm. enemy. How wonderful for you to have tried to protest and agitate for a better political state of affairs in your own country, but they come to the United States and are are treated like criminals at the border. And so if we want to actually be able to Stand up to the ideals that are, you know, almost Statute of liberty. We have to actually fund the asylum process so that someone is there to make decisions about whether or not there are legitimate claims being made.
0: Mm-hmm. Or, right, or make the process so that that's not the only way to get into the country. Yeah, right now. absolutely. That you don't have to come up with some political rationale for why you're doing this. It could just be you want to move to America because you want better economic opportunity. You want to contribute to our country. You want to work, et cetera. Like mm. these are not these are not things to shoo away. We need. We, there, there are jobs that need to be done here. Yeah. There's, you know, et, et cetera. Immigrants have built this country. Um, and also the, the GOP fear, with a long-running fear, that uh, you can't bring in immigrants because they're not going to ultimately they don't favor Republican policies is just proven time and time again not to be true. Uh, Flor- DeSantis, who, who I, I think in many ways is showing the way forward for the GOP or what a successful GOP could look like, has has created a state, has built— a relationship with immigrant voters that is very favorable to Republican terms. So so don't throw up your hands and give up here. He's showing you the way. You, there's a lot the National Party can learn from what he's done, and it's, it's just not true that you need to keep out these voters in order to ever be successful at the ballot box.
1: Yeah, well, it'll be interesting to see if that actually, if that reality— starts to change the kinds of positions that people like Kevin McCarthy take going down the pike, and to what extent some of this Republican opposition to immigration really was about feeling like it was hurting them electorally? Because you did hear a lot of that. You did hear, you know, Democrats are openly bragging about wanting immigrants to come in this country so they can win elections. And they they were openly bragging about that. And they were, they were absolutely. (laughs) They were just wrong. (laughs) They are increasingly wrong. So as that trend continues, let's see if that messaging actually shifts, and maybe that is part of the justification for why folks think that they might be able to actually get 10 Republican votes for this immigration deal.
0: Yeah, we'll see. All right, more rising in just a minute. Stay tuned. Mesa, Arizona has reached an $8 million settlement last week with the widow of Daniel Shaver, an unarmed man who was fatally shot by police officers. That's according to the Arizona Republic. Now, if you're unfamiliar with the story, here's a quick recap. It's one of the worst police misconduct stories I've ever seen. In January 2016, Mesa police responded to a report of a man pointing a rifle out of a hotel window. Turned out to be him showing his pellet gun that he used at his job as an exterminator, and he was showing it to a couple other hotel guests in his room. So police then showed up. They ordered him out of the hotel room and onto the, the ground, onto the, in the hallway in the hotel with his hands behind his head. But then instead of handcuffing him, even though they absolutely had him under control, the officers ordered him to crawl toward them without using his hands. And as, as Schaefer tried to crawl toward police, he, his pants fell down. He tried to pull them back up, which led the Mesa officer, Philip Mitchell Brailsford, to fire an AR-15 at him five times, killing him instantly. Uh, We do have the body cam footage of this instance. Please be warned, this is extremely disturbing. Don't watch it if this is something that is going to cause you any trauma. Here it is. National—former National National Review writer David French, now at the dispatch, said at the time he's a conservative, supporter of Second Amendment rights, and he served in Iraq. And he said, uh, uh, our U.S.—American soldiers in Iraq would not have treated uh, actual al-Qaeda terrorists like this. Um, This is a level of just police misconduct. Uh, So this person was dead. He had no opportunity. He was being asked to move in a way that you—that it's not possible to move that way. There was no reason for it whatsoever, even if you accept the legitimacy of this encounter to begin with. They had him on the ground, his hands up. There were two police officers. So at that point, it would have been appropriate to handcuff him. There was, there was no desire. There's no need to go to any of this. That cop, just insane anger, barking, confusing orders at him, back and forth. It's, it's just so— horrible. And then it gets even more horrible because he was acquitted. He was charged and acquitted. Jury acquitted him, the cop. And uh, then, then, (laughs) so he was fired. But of course, he's able to get his job back. Uh, they so this is from my colleague at Reason C J Siramella Brailsford uh, challenged his termination and in response the city cut a special deal that allowed him to be temporarily rehired so he could retire with medical benefits and a disability pension disability pension because he claimed that killing Shaver and his subsequent prosecution gave him post traumatic stress disorder he will receive a monthly pension two thousand five hundred dollars for the rest of his life thank you Mesa taxpayers.
1: I, I remember that video um, when it first came out and it hasn't gotten any less horrific in the intervening years no matter how many times I've seen it. It's, a, it's an extermination in cold blood and the indifference to the man's life shown before he was shot, where the cop is saying, "If you fall, you better fall on your face." I mean, that's a kind of an acknowledgement that he's in a tough situation in terms of following orders and moving in the way that he's being asked to move. The officer acknowledges that following orders might cause him to to fall over and not be able to comply, and he is angry about that, viscerally so. Uh, to shoot someone with such a powerful weapon in such close quarters, and again. Uh, The underlying reason that they're there is that he he owns a gun that he uh, used—a pellet gun that he uses in the course of his employment perfectly legally and justifiably. I mean, in so many of these cases, they are defended by people who say that they care about Second Amendment rights. But the victims in a lot of these cases that do have guns also have those same Second Amendment rights. And it is unfortunate that other factors— sometimes politics sometimes race prevents people from seeing that reality and i'm very i'm not obviously glad that this case happened but i am glad that it's getting attention because these are issues that largely they they are often racially implicated but that they're, they're not race issues police violence is not some exclusively black or brown issue white people are disp- are, are also killed at huge numbers i think an absolute numbers more by police they violence are, in
0: absolute numbers. Than, yeah, They're more of the population, so the percentages are not right. But in absolute numbers, they are killed.
1: Right. And yeah. I think so many people have been whipped up into political frenzies to basically defend that practice um, and defend the extent to which so many Americans across the spectrum are terrorized with police in exactly this way. So um, I'm glad to see this getting a- attention again. And hopefully there will be some actual uh, consequences meted out for not just this person, but for all of the instances of police misconduct and ineptitude that we've been mm-hmm. um Reporting on over the course of this year. And if you if
0: you were just a citizen, if you had an AR-15 and you killed someone in a hallway, and you said, "Well, I was afraid for my life while I was barking orders at this terrified, petrified, clearly he unarmed." Hearing this well,
1: voice, it's horrible uh, to listen to.
0: If you said if you tried to argue that, you would go to no one. A jury would not believe that. You would go to prison. So why is it that police officers who have training in order to be able to respond in these who are trusting with power and were and they should be able to handle these situations actually better than just your average citizen. So, they, but it, it, it's the opposite. They get more leeway. They, even though they should know how to, they have been trained to, and they are paid to, it's their job to correctly diffuse these situations, of which it would, this situation would have been trivially easily easy to diffuse. Uh, they, it's the opposite. They are not held accountable for doing things that would get anyone else Um, uh, I mean, arrested for murder. Yeah,
1: we we were were talking about this, I think, uh, just a little bit last week, that the the narrative around cops is weirdly that they should never have a scratch. It's not—it's a dangerous job, and occasionally, tragically, there are going to be bad outcomes, but this is the job that you sign up for. You are supposed to be willing on some level to put the public before yourself and put yourself— in harm's way for the public good. No, it's we're going to armor these people up. We're going to basically make the standard that nothing should ever happen to them. And at that point, they become dangerous because if if they are an armed quantity that's in a dangerous situation and the standard is that they should be protected first, what that means is that they become the agent of chaos. They're the ones that are causing harm and their subjective belief that they are in harm's way becomes a justification for them to do absolutely anything and given that they have so many arms at their disposal, that means that they can cause an infinite amount of disaster and that's what we're seeing in situations like this.
0: I mean, I've blanked in like routine traffic stops, when they say, hand over your papers, you hand them the wrong paper because it's it's a you're flustered, you're it's a yeah. frustrating, you're nervous thing. So e- even in even when they're being perfectly friendly, it can be an intimidating experience. <laughs> so this experience, in which this person is being ye- like told he's about to die, and then and then is killed. Yeah. I mean, it's just—it's just truly horrible. And yeah. uh, and not only did he not go to jail, he's going to get paid for by the
4: taxpayers forever. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, look, I, I did see a lot of conservative interest in this story, and it was mm-hmm. very nice to see. Mm-hmm. And I hope that trend continues. We'll continue to cover it, obviously, and we'll have more rising for you after this. Last week, Congressman Hakeem Jeffries was officially elected as successor to House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, making him the first black leader of either party in Congress. His position as House Minority Leader at the age of 52 marks a change in Democratic leadership toward a younger, more diverse generation of leaders. However, his rise to power has left many Democrats wondering if he'll be progressive enough. Since
0: his election, Jeffries has reportedly made strong efforts to build his relationship with the left wing of his party, meeting individually with members of the squad to introduce himself and emphasize his commitment to diversity and inclusion of thought. Joining us now to discuss is host of the Savvy Sabs podcast and co-host of the Revolutionary Blackout Network, Sabrina Salvati. Welcome, Savvy Sabs. Good morning. Thanks for joining us. Uh, well, so I don't know if meeting with the squad is going to really get the job done because I've heard a lot of criticism of the squad members themselves for being insufficiently progressive. From uh, no less an authority than Brianna Joy Gray over here, <laughs> and perhaps yourself as well.
4: Yes, I think uh, you know Hakeem Jeffries. He's another corporate Democrat uh, establishment figure. There, uh, I think people also need to remember that it was Hakeem Jeffries who started a PAC. Uh, to prevent other progressives from getting into Congress that were challenging incumbents. Uh, He's not for progressive policies. He's been very vocal about this. And so I think the question that we need to ask is, why isn't the squad pushing back against leadership of Hakeem Jeffries? Because this is someone who is going to be against the progressive policies that they are trying to enforce. So that's a big part of the problem. And I think that this brings to a a larger question here about whether or not the squad is actually doing what they're supposed to do in reference to that justice Democrat strategy. And they're not. Uh, And so for me, like I talk about this often about how they're not doing a hostile takeover of the Democratic Party, how they basically just align themselves with corporate Democrats like Hakeem Jeffries. And so I think... You know, I'm someone that's on the bottom of the totem pole. I think they're going to need to hear this message from some of the organizations that they're part of. Uh, Where is DSA when it comes to the squad? Because recently they issued a statement saying that they are not happy with the decisions that AOC and Cori Bush has made in reference to the railroad workers and preventing them to go on strike. So what it's going to take in order to hold them accountable, you're going to need organizations like DSA to push back on them. And if the squad members are not following the principles of DSA, then I call on DSA leadership to remove them from that organization. But I don't think that's likely to happen. So,
1: Sabrina, you bring up a good point. You know, for those who aren't aware, uh, many of these squad members were sought out and nominated and supported in their runs by organizations like Justice Democrats, who very explicitly had a plan to kind of create a Tea Party of the left, if you will, and really get people into office who had a more adversarial style of politics, people who were willing to call out establishment figures from Joe Biden, Hakeem Jeffries on down, and really draw a contrast between what they felt like was a real, genuine, progressive movement. That wasn't being reflected in um, uh, the uh, elected officials um, and the elected officials that that are currently in place. And people, including former leadership of uh, Justice Democrats, have criticized squad members for not actually taking that stance. However, it does seem like moments like this, where Hakeem Jeffries meets with squad members, says that he's making, you know, efforts to reach out and have a good relationships, is part and parcel of the problem we're in. it obscures the contrast that really do exist between different factions of the party and, and frankly, between the party itself and the populist policies that so many people across the aisle represent. And it is familiar, because when Nancy—when the squad was first elected, Nancy Pelosi, of course, sat down with these people. There were articles written about about how U.S. Speaker Pelosi all smiles after meeting with Ocasio-Cortez because it does them a great deal of service to be seen as conciliatory and open-minded and progressive and diverse and all of these sorts of things. So I'm curious, what do you make of the value of organizations like DSA if, at the end of the day, although they will— write letters saying that they are displeased with votes like the one over the railroad strike. They ultimately seem reluctant to um, kick members out. We also saw this with Jamal Bowman around one of his votes I believe it was for the Iron Dome—there was this kind of uh, censure. There was a kind of um, public critique, but there wasn't actually any accountability mechanism in place um, that seemed to have any effect on the outcomes here.
4: That is correct and, and I think we need to call on Justice Democrats organization as well because part of that strategy was that if the squad members did not do what they were supposed to do once they got into office, then they were supposed to be primary challenge. When they refused to force the vote, They should have been primary challenged that did not happen uh, at least on the left so there's been no accountability for them and they know that they're going to continue to get reelected and if there's no accountability then nothing is going to change Uh, i wish dsa leadership had that type of backbone and that type of energy And to be willing to stand up to them and say, listen, you cannot be a part of this organization anymore because you're not upholding the principles. The same can be said for Justice Democrats. I said the same thing before on my show. Justice Democrats should be holding the squad accountable. And I think what's unfortunate is that we've seen that some of these organizations that were supposed to be 100 percent grassroots are no longer 100 percent grassroots. They're taking billionaire money. They're taking money from people like George Soros. So this is a big part of the problem. And now I think organizations like DSA, they are kind of relying on uh, AOC and Cori Bush to help their brand. And so now it's almost to the point that if they do remove them from the organization, then what does that say about the brand of DSA? But these organization leaderships, they have to be more responsible and they have to be willing to hold these members accountable. And if they cannot do that, then maybe they should step aside and let someone else lead.
1: Yeah, so, I mean, which organizations? I'm sorry, just to clarify, which organizations are taking um, billionaire money or George Soros money?
4: Justice Democrats, for sure. I know that one for sure, because I have receipts on that one. Uh, and then also there's speculation about DSA, because DSA is not revealing who their donors are. And that's very suspect to me. Uh, Everyone else is doing this, including uh, organizations like the Sunrise Movement, which we also know has taken money from George Soros. So this is a problem. And I don't know for sure if that is the reason why they're not holding them accountable. I really think that they have been now they're they're pretty much relying on those politicians to help their brand. And now it would look bad for them, PR-wise, if they were to remove them from the organization. But I'm sorry, you have to be tough. You have to be stronger here. If they're not going to hold them accountable, then nothing is going to improve for people on the left.
0: Yeah, I mean, the difficulty is, you know, you want to portray your movement or your organization as broad and having a lot of members and having high-profile supporters like the squad members and then, so you're very excessively, um, you know, beholden to well, we're going to be very principled and, and you know, no true Scotsman this. And then it'll just be an organization with a very small, limited number of people. This is the kind of, I think, uh, strategic tension that ideological organizations kind of go in circles on, like, who—how broad can we be? Can we bring in people if we 90 percent agree with them, 70 percent agree with them, et cetera? And you you get yourself in this place where, even though the squad members are, you know, on on many fronts, like, more progressive than many other Democrats, still—but in in what they're—if they're they're letting— people down based on what they promised, they're not being as good as they were supposed to be, then you get in this weird place where I get the organizations feel like they want to dissociate from, themselves, from them.
4: That's correct. And I think we need to ask ourselves, are they effective at this point in time? Based on what I've seen, they're, they're not effective. And I think the strategy of putting progressives into the Democratic Party, when this was introduced at the time, in theory, it sounds great. But in practice, it has not been working. The problem is now they're in places that are unreachable. We can't reach them anymore. They do not appear on independent media for the most part. So how are we supposed to even talk to them? So that's another problem. They, are, they now have this wall in front of them where we cannot reach them. So there's something else has to be done here. There are people that do have direct lines to the progressives in Congress, but most of us do not. And for those people that do, I call on to you as well. You also need to hold them accountable. And I understand that they have to be careful with their criticism because they don't want to lose access to them. But if you're constantly running cover for them, you are not helping the left movement at all.
1: Hmm. Well, thank you, Sabrina, for joining us today. Thank you. We'll have more Rising for you right after this.
0: Well, today is the official runoff election for Georgia's Senate seat between incumbent Senator Raphael Warnock and Republican challenger Herschel Walker. While the outcome is expected to be close, Warnock is slightly favored, especially after edging ahead in the first round of voting in November.
1: However, Republicans are still hopeful for a Walker win, including former President Trump, who held a tele-rally, a rally via telephone, on Monday evening. Supporters were able to dial into the conference call and hear Trump speak. Joining us now to discuss is former special assistant to President Biden and former press secretary to First Lady Jill Biden, Michael LaRosa, and head of A Fresh Perspective and contributor to Red State and Liberty Nation, Jeff Charles. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Okay.
5: Thanks for having us on.
1: I will start with you. Sure. This is close. Uh, uh, Raphael Warnock is pulling ahead. What are the numbers looking like right now specifically?
3: Yeah, it looks like it's somewhere between like a two and four point race, according to polling. Mm-hmm. You know, And who knows what that actually means for a special or for runoff election. I always think of these as special. So they're very hard to predict. Mm. Um, Why is that? Is that because— I think it's because turnouts are always so different, and turnouts are always so so hard to predict, because usually, after Election Day, voting ends. Mm -hmm. So there's voter fatigue. Mm -hmm. But in this case, uh, I read that there's about 80,000 new voters who did not vote in the November election. Mm. I think that— probably gives Warnock
0: a slight edge because of who and where they are coming from. I'm going to be even bolder. I can't help myself. I'm going to predict Warnock will absolutely win. Uh, it's, it's over. It's done. They, uh, Jeff, help me out here. The demoralization I think on the conservative side it, it's palpable. I can feel it. And, and also this doesn't matter because they've already they already blew their opportunity to take the Senate. So you have that. I, I just can't imagine you know people being more invigorated to go out and and draw a uh, drag uh, uh, Walker over the edge this time than last time,
5: but uh, am I wrong? What am I missing? Uh, and uh, unfortunately, Robbie, I, I think you're absolutely <laughs> right. That that's exactly what I've been seeing too. I think that there is a very distinct lack of enthusiasm for Herschel Walker, just like there kind of was for Dr. Oz as well. But the difference is that the Democrats already have the Senate and Walker is not a good candidate. You can't go out there and say that you're a werewolf and then expect people to vote (laughs) for you, as it turns out. So, yeah, I do do believe that Warnock's going to win. I think Walker still has a chance, but it's not a very good one.
1: Yeah, I mean, not just saying that he's a werewolf, but on Sunday, Herschel Walker's ex-girlfriend, uh, Cheryl Parson, detailed the alleged abuse she faced from him uh, in their five-year relationship, including pinning her against a wall and choking her following finding him with another woman. Apparently, he attempted to punch her but missed and hit the wall. I mean, it's these allegations. It's the comments from his son that had distanced himself from him earlier on. Obviously, there was the whole deal with— um, paying for uh, an abortion despite coming out as an anti-choice candidate. Um, Yes, it was Christian Walker, his son, that accused him of abusing his family. I mean, all of these things we can say militate against him. But, of course, a lot of this was out in uh, in the ether before the first round of election, and it was so much closer than many people thought it should have been at the time. Does that concern you at all, Jeff?
5: Yeah, I mean, a a lot of the stuff that came out, I mean, it was kind of baked into the cake, right? So while a lot of these were... New revelations, we already knew who Herschel Walker was in his past. So I wasn't surprised that people still kind of turned out for him, but I I do think it had somewhat of an impact. But at the same time, the the alternative, at least for people on the right, is somebody who's going to be very much pro abortion, very much with a progressive agenda. But I I mean, I do think that in this runoff, I think it's just, I think people are just throwing their hands at like, okay, it's just, it's going to go the way it's going to go. And maybe we'll do better next. Next
0: time. What are uh, Democrats saying to kind of, you know, seal the deal? What is the—what is the message for getting Warnock over the finishing line?
3: Mm-hmm. Well, from from um, the campaign events Warnock was doing over, over the weekend, um, he's talking about, you know, some—like, ca- the character, what it takes to be a senator and represent uh, the state of Georgia. And he's someone who believes that his opponent is extremely flawed as a, char- uh, his, as a, a character. <laughs> um, yeah. Pretty much going back to what you were talking about. Um, And I think, you know, it was interesting. The president did not come and campaign for for Senator uh, Warnock, and Donald Trump did not campaign, uh, at least in person, with uh, Herschel
0: Walker. Not in several months, yeah.
3: Although
1: there have been a number of Republicans who have been doing um, these—Republican leadership—who have been doing these TV appearances uh, with— uh, Herschel Walker, yeah. kind of sitting next to him in a way that almost feels like a kind of ventriloquism because he does yeah. new seem best to friend be Lindsey Graham, to... exactly. Lindsey yeah. cool. Graham. I, I do time. think
3: it's important for them to try to get to fifty uh, to keep the committees even um, in terms of assignments to keep an even number of members on the committee. This way, they can block more of the president's judges and can um, you know hold up a lot of administration activity with fifty rather than forty-nine.
0: Mm. Jeff, if uh, if Herschel Walker loses, does he have a future? In conservative politics or conservative media or something like that. I, 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 I say that as someone who would think that generally people who are losing these elections would not then be kind of embraced as like important conservative spokespeople, but I see Carrie Lake still doing, you know, who is not going to be Arizona's next governor. She's going to be headlining a turning point conference or at least participating in it. i maybe not headlining Donald it. Uh, it's Yeah, et cetera. The kind of staying power of personalities. Um, who have not been proven to be winners, um, it, on the Republican side, is remarkable. Although, that, you know, I tweeted this and then people put, well, what about Stacey Abrams? What about Beto O'Rourke, et cetera? So there's plenty of examples on both sides. But, uh, you know, what, what do you think about Herschel Walker's future prospects?
5: You know, I mean, the thing about Carrie Lake is that she was able to endear herself to the base. So even if she didn't win, she was still going to have a spot. Herschel Walker, kind of the same thing. I mean, they liked him before and in, in general, before he ran, he was pretty popular in Georgia because of his NFL career. I think after this, I don't know if he'll have the level of, of influence that a Kerry Lake does. I don't think he'll run for another office again, or if he does, he won't enjoy the same level of support because, uh, honestly, he was a bad candidate, and people do believe that he was better on the sidelines doing other stuff, hyping other people up. So I think he'll still play a role, but I don't think he, 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 it's going to be as prominent as it was now.
1: Yeah, Jeff, it's interesting because it, it it's hard for someone like myself who is not necessarily a, a football fan to understand how he's perceived and how he's managed to get this far even. But I did notice that in some of the Warnock ads, he didn't come at um, Herschel Walker so directly he's, he, he acknowledged his value as a, as a football player and his role in the state and in people's like p- positive memories and simply said he's better in that role than he is in, in Congress and I do think that that is a distinction between him and some folks like um, Carrie Lake, who has a longer career in politics as a newscaster talking about these sorts of issues and who frankly is just infinitely more plausible as a candidate uh, I, I'm thinking back to uh, Dave because Chappelle's character Yeah, I mean, I, I'm trying to, I'm trying to be p- polite here, but I mean, <laughs> Dave Chappelle, in some ways, said it best when, what, what did he say? I mean, I'm not endorsing this, but Dave Chappelle described him on SNL as ob- observably observably stupid. I mean, the man does not seem to know what he's talking yeah. about. Let's just put it that way. And so, I mean, these char- he like right in. Donald Trump characters seem like Mensa candidates compared mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. uh, Herschel Walker. I mean, so, so what do you make of this? I, at the end of the day, do you think this is actually going to negatively affect the credibility of Republicans for putting forward characters like this, yeah. or is it
3: just onto the next? Oh, it already has. I mean, some of these people that Trump backed that got the nomination, they ended up not doing well. And it goes back to sort of what Mitch McConnell said months ago, that we have a candidate-quality prob- candidate problem. Mm-hmm. And um, I think Republicans are going to have to make a choice, a strategic choice, in how they vote from now on, because if they keep following Donald Trump—I mean, the guy has a, just a terrible track record in Georgia alone. Mm. Everybody he backs loses. Um, he lost Georgia. The Republicans have lost the 2018 cycle, the 2017 cycle, 19, 20. How many times do they have to follow Donald Trump down a losing path? It's amazing to lose three Senate seats in one state in two years. (laughs) Yes, I know, I know.
0: So He's also the first president to lose Georgia since 1992. So is this—okay, but there have been so many moments in time throughout the last six years where the intellectual class, the elites, the media, various political figures say— this is a bridge too far, this thing that Trump has done. Yeah. That was true of the Access Hollywood tape. Mm-hmm. That was true of you're denying that he won the yeah. election. That was true of January 6th. So many times, but it has not, sh- maybe all of those things diminished him some in, in some standing with some group, yeah. but did not result in the end of his political career. Right. So is this time different? No. No. No, it's not. So he's still going to be around. I, I <laughs> yeah. guarantee it. Yeah. What do you think, Jeff?
5: Oh oh yeah I mean there's a reason I've been calling him Teflon Don. I mean he he can he gets away with with a lot. Now there could be something that comes up in the future that takes him out but for right now no he he he's here to stay. I will say that there are more people on the right kind of giving him the side eye. There's a lot of talk of DeSantis over Trump. I think he has lost some influence and I think this runoff if if a walker does lose it's going to be yet another blow because he put his endorsement on herschel walker against a lot of people's better judgment he put his name on dr oz and the base didn't like it so he has lost some influence but he is still very much favored on the right it's going to take more than this to to knock him Mm. out of the uh, political stage
0: jeff michael thank you both so much for joining us today and we'll have more rising right after this
1: The Supreme Court is leaning towards a rule that a Christian website designer has a free speech right to refuse to work with same sex couples planning to get married because she is a conservative evangelical Christian. The case was brought by Lori Smith, who wanted to expand her business to include weddings, but she filed suit against Colorado, seeking confirmation that she is not obliged to work with a same-sex couple seeking a wedding website she could provide. This is according to Yahoo News. It's also worth noting that there has not actually been a same-sex couple seeking her services. This was a preemptive case, test case uh, that was brought. The conservative majority court on Monday appeared ready to make their ruling in favor of Smith.
0: The outcome of this case could puncture laws in a variety of mostly blue states that forbids discrimination against LGBTQ customers. Liberal Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor asked if this ban could affect other unions as well. She asked how about people who don't believe in interracial marriage or people who don't believe disabled people should be married, underscoring the question of where the First Amendment line can be drawn. So I think pretty much everyone expects this to be a six to three decision or something along those lines. Um, in favor of this uh, this small business owner's right not to uh, design a website for uh, same-sex marriage. Um, I think, frankly, the, spe- the arguments that that would violate her First Amendment rights are probably stronger, even in this case, than some of the other ones that have been decided, like the, the cake baking shop, Why given you that, think that I would say that this is more explicitly Speech-related, then I mean, I and to be clear, I agreed with the conservatives in the cake-baking cake case as well. This is even more clearly, in my mind at least, and I think in the minds of a lot of people, a, it's a speech-related issue because a website is—I mean, it has literally has words on it, right? It it, it engages that uh, a, a written, creative process to make a website.
1: Yeah, I guess the the question that people are asking is if she makes kind of pro forma, and this is the line of question that uh, Justice Kagan was asking about. If, to a certain extent, a lot of these websites are pretty pro forma, and a wedding website is, you know, here's a date, here's the pictures that are submitted by a couple, here's a venue, um, they they submit the statements that get posted to the website, she's more in a a hosting capacity. What is the line between saying, I'm selling a kind of a a rote good, a kind of a standardized good, the same way I would be selling cups or reefs of paper or, or you know, whatever, mm-hmm. cell phones, and saying, I'm denying a gay person, a gay couple, a right to buy it because I disagree with their quote-unquote lifestyle and saying, you know, this is a, free sh- a speech issue because there are words on the cup or my creativity has gone into it. And I think that, that is where a lot of people are a little uncertain. People were objecting to a line of questioning um, from Justice Alito where he was uh, running through the hypothetical of if I am basically a mall Santa taking pictures with families and there is a child with a KKK robe on, do I have to, as the mall Santa or the photographer, have to participate in that? And if the answer is is no, there was a, another colloquy about, well, what if it was a black kid in KKK robes and people were laughing and joking about that and, 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 mm-hmm. and, and taking issue with the Supreme Court's levity with this uh, counterfactual. I think that's a distraction. I do think it's, it, there's something, I, I, let me just say this. I think that the K, the K case was hard. And honestly, I think probably rightly decided, despite me not objecting on the substance of, and me not agreeing with the substance of it. I am concerned about how far this is going to go, mm-hmm. um, because there are these cases being brought. Again, nobody infringed on this woman's speech rights. Nobody asked her to do this, nobody I don't think a lot of gay couples are like eagerly wanting someone who has statedly, you know, has been very clear that they don't agree with their right to be married and to love each other in that way, wanting them to plan their wedding. Like that's not actually what's happening. Well, but what the goal is here is to get laws on the books that are gonna be potentially c- coercive and restrictive to other people in other circumstances. I mean, a,
0: a, a gay couple did. Seek out the cake shop That's owner, true. right? Yeah. To, to, you're yeah. right. Not in this case, and I mean, I agree with you. It's just, it, it's like, who's being harmed? Like, there are so many options to to satisfy your cake baking needs or your or your your wedding website needs. I, I, so many people, so many businesses that would that would affirm and participate in a gay celebration. There is no harm. There's no likelihood of of you know of a star, of 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 not having that met that need met. So then it it becomes, for me, in addition to being a free speech issue, like, is the state's compelling interest in in enforcing this business? to help serve a wedding, where, where this is like a bad match all the way around, because they wouldn't want to, they'll do a bad job because they don't believe in it, and it just, it seems so messy and unnecessary to make them do it in these couple cases. It seems fundamentally different. Okay, what if you're in a small town, right, we can co- all sorts, concoct all sorts of scenarios. A small town, there's only one inn, there's only one hotel, and they won't let a uh, traveling gay couple stay there. I could see how you can make an argument that, no, maybe the government has some compelling interest in that, there's some harm to actually adjudicate. There's no harm here. The, or the harm yeah. is, on, is on the business being forced to do something they don't want to do. And on the other side, there's not really—they have plenty of other options, so why make and, them?
1: And those kind of instances, that was the setting of these kind of—the um, the, the Kassenberg cases, these, uh, these, yeah. uh, the slate of civil rights cases that got the law on the books as we understand it today. The justification was often that, you know, you have you know, black people traveling interstate— through states where there are sundown towns and there are prohibitions against staying in um, mixed-race housing establishments, gas stations, um, being able to find restaurants that would serve black people, and that you could drive through for days and days and days in the United States of America territory where you would basically die or starve to death on the side of the road because there literally weren't any accommodations for you. And at that point, the government should step in and say— these are these are basic needs that need to be met, and you can't mm-hmm. discriminate against someone, even though you do have a right, of free association, and these attendant speech rights. I it's it's difficult because you don't. I think everyone's concerned about what happens if the the camel's nose gets under the tent, or whatever the expression is. Um, I've never heard that one. Yeah, you know <laughs> what it, does it, happen if the horse, camel's nose gets under the tent? Is <laughs> the horse out of the barn. But whatever these expressions okay. are. Um, and we are, do we do seem to be, I think, as a society litigating the parade of horribles as opposed to this particular instance. Cause again, in this particular instance, I don't give a, I don't care what this unhappy lady wants. I don't care what this unhappy baker wants. People have other kinds of options, but is, are, are these organizations that are bringing these kinds of cases, mounting something bigger and we're going to look up one day and be afraid of what we were indifferent to because it didn't seem well. like that big a deal at the time.
0: I think they would say they're afraid if they say nothing, the next thing will be— I mean, this is getting kind of close to, could a Christian publisher not take a book proposal from a from a gay person? Could a—is something very ideologically tied or is it something getting closer and closer to but no one's the speech even done element it. of the First that, Amendment? That's the
1: thing. Like, I would understand that if there were a bunch of, like— gay couples t- terrorizing small I, Christian I businesses don't think, well, trying to force their hand, but that's like that's not actually what's happening here. Okay,
0: no, but this woman was concerned that she, she was going to expand her business into wedding websites and saw that on paper there is this rule prohibiting her from doing what she was intending to do, and she was worried that some bureaucrat in connection with some activists on this issue is going to make her life hell, which you could absolutely imagine happening, even if the vast majority of, of these couples would not want to work with her or have any kind of— The, the, the issue is, if it's, if it's on the books— there could be some bureaucrat and some activists who want to punish you for it, which is so what I, happened I, in the masterpiece I, I case, do think right? That's, that's
1: a little bit too credulous. The so the the ADF has been working with her, and there's been the whole publicity machine that has been covered by people. I'm the I'm, Mark Joseph Stern has done a thread on this, where they had her website is being developed in conjunction with the people who are running her case to basically set her up as a test case for this. It's not really clear how much of this is even authentic in the first place or whether she just volunteered to be a person. Was she even sincerely interested in expanding her business in this way? It's not even clear. I mean, so it doesn't really matter. At the end of the day, there could be someone like her, but the question is Whether or not we're all being done a disservice by framing this issue as though there are a bunch of gays that want to force you into their lifestyle, when the opposite, it seems in fact is true. There are a bunch of people preemptively trying to narrow the rights and privileges that historically marginalized groups um, have, and whether or not people are being put into a position of fear and defensive posture because they believe that is the case, when in fact it's the opposite. I don't know, is the world being yeah. benefited by someone bringing this kind of lawsuit without just waiting for someone who authentically is frustrated by being forced to make content that is against their own beliefs?
0: Right, but I guess if I think they shouldn't, and I do think that they shouldn't be forced anyway, I, I'm fine with having it adjudicated over this case. I,
1: don't know, I think that what we saw in Dobbs, there are times when political decisions far are far broader than even the case that's being brought before them, and that has far-reaching consequences for a lot of vulnerable people and, I, and 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 that's the concern. If it could just stay here, I don't think that there's a person in this world who gives a fig if this particular woman serves gay people. Well, obviously
0: mean, some people does. The the court, the there are people on the other side of this case, right? There are probably going to be three Supreme Court justices who vote that she should have to do that even in the the hypothetical and the no, actual that ever I, came I'm up. Not,
1: once the case is brought, you have to defend mm. the case, but that's not the issue. It's whether or not that in the abstract, anybody cares what this individual woman does versus whether we care there's a law in the books. A lot of people are invested in whether or not there's a law in the books that will limit the right of gay people. And so that that that's what's being um, arbitrated here. Mm. And I don't know. I, I, I do think it's important to realize the posture is, the question is, are people weaponizing religion to narrow people's rights or are people weaponizing, you know, uh, gay culture or leftist culture or whatever to narrow the rights of religious people. And I'm not sure that we've got the framing on this one, right?
0: Well, Robbie, website designs takes all comers. So (laughs) just look out for that. More rising right after this.
1: Michael Avenatti, a lawyer who is best known for representing his former client, adult film actress Stormy Daniels, in lawsuits against former President Donald Trump, has been sentenced to 14 years in prison for stealing millions of dollars from clients. Prosecutors said Avenatti obstructed IRS efforts to collect more than $3.2 million in unpaid payroll taxes, which includes money he withheld from the paychecks of employees who worked for his coffee company, Global Baristas.
0: Let's take a look at the compilation, yes, we have a compilation of Avenatti from the legacy media. He's Donald Trump's worst nightmare, Michael Avenatti. (laughs)
2: Joining us once again is Michael Avenatti. Let's bring in Michael Avenatti.
3: Michael
5: Avenatti. Michael Avenatti.
3: Michael Avenatti, thank you very much. He's (laughs) out there saving the country. Don
5: Meacham says he may be the savior of the republic. You are something of a folk hero now.
3: I owe Michael Avenatti
0: an apology. I've been saying enough already, Michael. I've seen you everywhere. What do you have left to say?
2: I was wrong, brother. You have a lot to say. I uh, am just dying to hear what you think. These people all like you. I'm the only person right here Donald Trump fears more than Robert Miller.
5: We think you guys are the tip of the spear that's going to take down Donald Trump. Michael Avenatti's a beast.
0: Avenatti was also ordered to pay nearly $11 million in restitution to the four clients he stole from, including an individual who uh, who is paraplegic and has mental health issues. That's according to the New York Times. Uh, wasn't he trying to fleece Nike or something as well? I think oh, I that's I what that took, him uh, took him right. down. A took him
1: down? You give cross, your take while I look that up. You <laughs> cross a lot of people, but apparently Nike, these shoe companies. Yes, cross, yes. Hey? <laughs> Michael
0: Avenatti <laughs> sent it in Nike extortion case. Yeah, I remember seeing the documents from this. It's just wildly... Uh, it it was a truly wild extortion attempt in that it was so brazen and obviously likely to fail and get him in legal jeopardy. And yeah, Nike was just like, here you go, feds, and then
1: jail. Yeah, look, my, my take on all of this is that I'm not, sometimes people that you like for one reason turned out to be frauds or doing things behind the scenes and it wasn't in your knowledge. And I don't blame anybody for that. What I blame these commentators for is having such a breathless, affinity for the man, not because there was a lot of substantive evidence that he was meaningfully advancing the various liberal interests of the world, but simply because he was anti-Trump. And it really wasn't evidence of of how much people were willing to ignore because of Trump derangement syndrome. There were people across the political spectrum, the panel on The View, uh, people like Anna Navarro, who are conservatives. It didn't matter if you were liberal or Republican, if you were anti-Trump, you loved Uh, Avenatti because it seemed for some reason at a moment in time that he was the hero that the world needed to bring Trump down. I, I cannot for the life of me understand why people invested him with so much of that um, trust, but it distorted people's ability to see him in his totality, and now they're going to have to live with those kind of clips circulating. I,
0: I saw it up close in person; it was even more fawning than those clips. Um, I was actually on a, a California radio show my, for my friend John Phillips uh, yesterday, and he was saying he was one. He was at a. Uh, a restaurant or something where there were a lot of celebrities go at, when, when Avenatti came through. And like that, Avenatti was the celebrity that celebrities wanted a selfie with. And I saw that same thing. I went to, once to a White House correspondence dinner, like after party type thing in DC here. And he was there and everyone, like, yeah, he was the guy. And th- this is in a room with other celebrities or political celebrities. They loved him. They thought he was God emperor. He, they thought it's- he was Jesus Christ himself.
1: It's so odd. Yeah, I don't know. It does. I mean, didn't turn out well. Some of it. I remember there was a little bit of that kind of queermosexual um, vibe about him, where mm. you know people were fawning over him yeah. just, just, just a certain degree of romantic interest in um That came from one of
0: the View clips where didn't he say something about handcuffs seductively I, to I, Joy Behar?
1: I can't even, but it didn't. My it friend
0: Megan McCain <laughs> rolled her eyes at that.
1: <laughs> there there, were, there went, was something eh. <laughs> of a crush that it seemed like a lot of these people yeah. had on him. A disproportionate number of the people in that in re- real, I will say, didn't seem to be women. Yeah. Yeah.
0: They were thirsty for him.
1: They were thirsty for, <sighs> for Michael Avenatti. And look, the, the, the things that he's been Charged with and that he's been convicted of are really serious. Yeah, um, and it, and it exploitative and it, not just he exploited Stormy Daniels. Yeah,
0: he exploited the person who was also supposed to be a hero in this story. Right, he exploited her. Right, um, he exploit he he uh, his entry into the Brett Kavanaugh me Too discussion where he was briefly representing or putting forth um, a, a very. I would say, at least, even in in, in in general, and in comparison to other people who are saying things, a very not credible candidate uh, accuser, uh, Julie Swetnick, mm. whose story very quickly fell apart, mm. and who he had latched onto uh, it, 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 at that time. I, I think the uh, the mystique of Michael Avenatti was coming well undone. Mm. But uh, but yeah, it's wow.
1: Well, do you do you expect to have any kind of? Um... Uh, apologies, any 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 um, crow eating from the camp that made him into the figure that he became. No, I think
0: they're just going to pretend that never happened. I mean, there's so many receipts for this, you can't. You just kind of have to, I think, own it and pivot and pretend it didn't happen. Um, and look, I like some of those people in those clips, or they have interesting to say uh, su- things to say on other subjects. Yeah,
1: I'm a fan of Eddie Gloud.
0: I'm, I'm a <laughs> fan of um, of. Um, am I blanking on his name right now? The HBO guy. Um, Bill Maher? Bill Maher. I am a fan of. You're not a fan of, but I am a fan of. (laughs) Uh, So, you know, I don't think you have to, like, retire from the take-having industry or something because of this. But come but on, at bad. a certain
1: point, what is the value of your takes if so many of your takes are so wrong? And if they're all wrong for the same reason, which is that your only compass is Trump bad. Yeah. Trump bad, Trump bad. And look, I know that, that Bill Maher is considered a If your only compass is Trump bad,
0: you should retire from the take-having and, and, industry. And,
1: and yes. look, the ideological diversity of these people who all are being led by Trump, but people on, many, many people on the left, liberals, et cetera, hate Bill Maher now. They feel like he has oh. abandoned his liberal principles, that now he has made all of these weird weird fellows that he loves people like for the intellectual dark web types and has Barry yeah. Weiss on his show all the right. time. He learned, he was, well,
0: because he learned how, that there's more to life than just hating Donald uh, Trump.
1: No, but that's I think that's, that's not exactly what I'm going to say. It's the opposite, actually. At the end of the day, he fell for Trump bad. He continues to fall for Trump bad because he's someone who has a certain degree of um, appreciation for decorum and the way things are supposed to be. So while he might wow. dabble, yes, he'll dabble in these cultural issue things and say, that I, when I was a kid, we used to be tough and we didn't wear seatbelts and we survived and he'll engage in some of that grandpa discourse that people love so much. When it comes to politics, he didn't like Trump because he was uncouth. The same reason why Anna Navarro and all of those view ladies and everybody else didn't like Trump and couldn't understand why there were people who did like Trump. And his analysis of Trump was this very reductive, He's he's a racist, he's bad da 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 which you know i'm not disputing some of the underlying critiques of trump but they fail to understand the material class reasons that so many people saw him as an alternative to a corporatized captured status quo and that is why i don't listen to any of these people anymore and if your only job is takes i'm sorry you you should have to reckon with all of the ones that you're getting bad they're doing getting wrong rather fair enough yeah well we also can't forget the time when avenadi was offered a spot on the view let's watch that
2: Lately to me, you're like the Holy Spirit. You are all, all places at all times, right I mean, you I, I do I see you all over cable news. I see you, you know, there is a, a, a seat available if you want to be a co-host at the view. You might you know there's people here you can pitch.
0: Uh, you I thought mean, I was joking when I said they treated him like Jesus Christ. You literally called him the Holy Spirit. They're aspects of the same person, according to Christian philosophy. He, so.
1: he, he can transcend kind of the gender paradigm of The View, become the first male host. Look, you'll, you'll never get a, a a like an Abby Martin type. You'll never get a progressive on The View. They were even mean to AOC when she was on The View. But Michael Avenatti, he's their kind of people. Oh,
0: boy. Well, hope he enjoys... Uh, <laughs> Prison, I guess. <laughs>
1: Whatever. Oh, so, I mean, I never, I never. I'm not rooting for yeah, like, mass root incarceration. For yeah, I, I'm just good, saying the, the judgment on display. You know, no people aren't bad people. But at a certain point, the same with the Hunter Biden stuff, you have to start reckoning with the mistakes that you've made. It's possible to grow and be better, but you can't just brush the stuff yeah. under the rug.
0: Yeah. It really, do you think it just it went to his head? Was, maybe we said he was already engaged in very shady activities, but uh, or the, because of the media interest in him, he just quickly became the worst version of himself.
1: Maybe, but look, there's, a, there's certain professions where they say a certain level of sociopathy is overrepresented. Bankers, lawyers, who knows? That's between him and his uh, psychologist. This is why out. we stay
0: so grounded, Brianna. <laughs> we, check, we check each other. Sure. <laughs> Tomorrow on Rising, Brianna and I will be back right here to bring you all the biggest news of the day.
1: Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who like to listen while on the go, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. We're also available on Roku and other streaming services, if that's more your vibe. So be sure to check us out there. See you later. Bye-bye.